Street Brass Podcast with your host, Phil Andrews. Today we'll be talking to Jonathan Goldman. He's the band leader and composer for the Boogaloo band Spanglish Fly. But before we get to the interview, let's start with a song. This is off their new album. The song is called La Clave Imi Boogaloo, and the album is named Ike Boogaloo. This is the Street Brass Podcast, and this is your host, Phil Andrews. We're here with Jonathan Goldman, band leader, ranger, trumpet player, composer, um, all-around great guy with Spanglish Fly. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, Phil. How you doing? I feel like to that introduction, I should go like, or something. But... <laughs> well, what are those four things is your, is your, uh, your, your favorite part? Well, um... It's funny, I guess probably right now I'd say composer only because, not only because, but largely because I, I never really anticipated how gratifying writing songs would be, writing songs and writing arrangements for the songs would be. So um, on our on the new Spanglish Fly record, I, I, I don't know, I feel like I've, I've reached a new level as a songwriter and a level that really never anticipated um, when I started out playing music. It was never really in my um, sights to become a songwriter like this. It just kind of happened. Well, let's talk about that. How did, we, how did you get there? I mean, let's, let's start with a full disclosure. All right, so we have known each other a long time. That's right. About uh, 12 years, I think. I think so. I think we probably met in 2005 or six in the Rude Mechanical Orchestra. Yeah. You were playing trumpet, and I was playing trombone. You were there first. Yeah. And uh, pretty soon after that, kind of both of us got our feet wet in arranging for, for brass bands, or at least that was my experience. Is that, was that the first place where you started really 
uh, working on charts and arranging tunes for a big band. Yeah, that's right. I had been I'd previously led the the Monkey Shine Nine, which was an old timey jazz band, but we didn't have arrangements. We just played the mel that we just played the head and soloed for a while and made up other stuff. Um, so it was in the RMO that yeah, I started. I got the software, and uh, I learned the software kind of at the same time as I learned harmony, <laughs> because uh, I just I didn't have any per, any um, formal training whatsoever. Was it finale so it was, at the time? It was it was finale. I don't know what number finale, but uh, it was the software was as janky as my command of the music was. I would say. Um, so there was a lot of trial and error, a lot of making stuff up. But yeah, doing some arrangements for the RMO was, um, well, that was a lot of fun. And, you know, of course, it's a challenging way to start when you're arranging for, um, you know, what, what could be a 12-piece or a 30-piece, depending on the night. Right. And But neither of those were Latin or, or Boogaloo primarily. And where did you... Where did that interest come from, or where was the first time you started playing that music? Well, um, I used to DJ a lot, and I still do occasionally. And it was, um, and I was, I was, my DJing was all I was. I was collecting. This is like in the early two thousands. I started doing this. I was collecting rare and and classic and rare funk and soul, and it was in collecting those old records or just, you know, finding stuff on the internet that I discovered Latin Boogaloo, which was really my introduction to Latin music. Latin Bo- the Latin Boogaloo would get mixed in with the soul and the funk stuff because it's a crossover genre. So I had, before that, I had only a really a very amateurish appreciation for Latin music, mostly classic salsa, but it was upon discovering this, you know, like one record by Mongo Santa Maria and then one record by Joe Batan and one record by Jimmy Castor, one record by Ray Barreto, that I started piecing this together. Wow, this sounds like some genre I don't know anything about. And I found out that there was this thing called Latin Boogaloo in the late 1960s, this fad that, uh, you know, pretty much disappeared and is it's not very well remembered or it's, you know, it's, it, it was eclipsed by salsa. Um, so I fell in love with this music and I started playing it as a DJ a lot. And I started thinking someone has to bring back this music and play it live. And this was at a time that there was um, a lot of retro stuff happening, a lot of revival stuff. So Antibalas was playing Afrobeat music and introdu- reintroducing it or introducing it to audiences. And Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings were, and the, the whole Dap Tone scene was reviving 60s style classic soul. So I was thinking, well, when's, when's someone going to do Latin Boogaloo? And nobody did. So, so I had to because I just felt like it had to happen. And that was, that was a couple years after, after, uh, after I first joined the RMO that I got it going.
tonight wearing our boogaloo shoes. So one thing I wanted to get into is, is, I mean, first of all, that you've got a new album coming out. Um, this is, uh, what is this, the third full length? It's the second full length. We, we put out an EP and a few singles along the way. Awesome. And, um, you know, it looks like, you know, you've always had original co- compositions and original arrangements on the other albums, but this one has a lot more, it seems, um, original stuff that that you've written um and do do you want to let us know how how that came to be i wrote a lot of the songs with my collaborator my main collaborator who also co-produced the record chaco um manuel garcia orozco and when we um we we had been working together sporadically for a while but a summer in let's say the summer of 2016 we started talking about the next Banglish Fly record. And we really sat down and talked about what makes a great record. And we wanted to make this a very intentional record as a set of songs that work together or a you know a sort of journey start to finish rather than just a collection of songs that the band happened to be playing at the time. So there was that was part of the strategy when it came to the writing and um that you know that sort of reflected in the sort of greater variety of from song to song that you hear on the record. Mm-hmm. So, for example, "Ohala Inshallah" is um, a very sort of hopeful, dreamy song. Um, that uh, I mean, Chaco calls it um, uh, the "Imagine" of the album, where it's it's about um, you know imagining a better world. And it's also it's also the idea is to connect these two words. Ojalá is the is a Spanish word meaning hope or I hope, and it derives from the Arabic word Inshallah, which is God willing. So I wanted to sort of bring that to the for, to the forefront. And um, on the track, I um, recorded a friend of mine, a French Moroccan poet, Abderrahman El Yusfi. Um, um, reciting some words of a poem he wrote inspired by my lyrics for the song. And that really adds something that we haven't had in Spanglish Fly uh, to this point, uh, you know, sort of Arabic chant on the record. And then there's, there's you know, a little bit of hints of uh, the, the Arabic scales um, thrown in some of the soloing. Thank you. 
So Mr. Dizzy Izzy is a song that we did for uh, Izzy Sanabria, a tribute to um, Fania Records artist and MC Izzy Sanabria. Um, and um, it, this was definitely like, I wrote the first bluesy half of the song and he wrote the second very salsa feeling half of the song which is not to say that I don't write the Latin parts and he doesn't write the more American parts because that's not the case. That's just the way it worked out in that song specifically. Switch gears real quick and tell me about. So you, you do have some covers on the album also, and um, do you want to talk about either? I did a two or three of them. Yeah, there are two. Um, so the first one was, I mean, I, I sort of like can't believe we decided to do this, but we um, we did. Um, you know, I'm no good uh, by the Amy Winehouse tune, which we call "You Know I'm No Good," uh, "Chica Mala Mambo." Um, so, I mean, the reason I say that kind of can't believe we did this is there are two reasons. One is it's such a like uh, the the original version is still I think still like steamrolling over our culture in a way you still hear it a lot and people are still like I think the world is still coming to terms with what a genius Amy Winehouse was. Um, so to tackle one of her tunes is is you know was a little uh, you know it was it was bold in a way, um, but also because on our on our, our previous covers had only been of tunes that were exist that had existed in the Boogaloo era. So we always sort of pretended we were a Boogaloo band doing a James Brown song or a Boogaloo band doing another Latin song. So this was a song obviously from 2006 and what, or in six or whenever this, this one came out and we just um, loved it. And our singer, one of our two singers, Mariela Gonzalez, she it's one of her favorite songs so we thought, Chaco and I thought, well, what could we do with this? And we, we wanted to make it sound, we thought we could make it sound like a bolero, um, like a sort of traditional Cuban sound. Uh, and that's the first half of the song is it's supposed to sound like a very intimate, smoky nightclub, um, you know, sometime, like Havana 1959 or something. And we played it that way for a while, and and we loved it. But we also thought, like, I was thinking, there's got it. There's, there's something more we can do here. And that's when I thought of of um, La Lupe's version of Fever. And I thought, 
this is what needs to happen is La Lupe in Fever, she does two minutes of the song and then it breaks and it just turns into a salsa tune where she's still alluding to some of the Fever lyrics. I think I actually haven't listened for a long time. Yeah. Um, Maybe we'll throw in a little clip there. Everybody, 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 everybody got the fever. That is something you all know. Tener fiebre no es de ahora. was something that like I arranged sort of retroactively first and this is not the way Spanglify always operates but um, I sort of just have the, we did the band just jammed on the tune like we you know we, we played the the tune and we stopped where we would usually finish it and then the percussionist just picked it up and the piano and bass kicked in and then between Mariela and Chaco and myself we came up with um, sort of a a coro to sing over it. That's the chorus at the you know the group chorus, um, and uh, I said, Mariela, can you improvise some lyrics? And she said, Yeah, let me think about it for a while. And um, you know, I told her my ideas for what she might do, and she came up with her own ideas. And then, but the funny thing is that we went when we went into the studio to record this, we got to that part of the song, and at this point, Mariela. Mariella was there with her her husband, who was a sax player, Morgan Price, who was a guest on a couple songs on the record, and their baby, who was, I think, I don't know what, like six months at the time. And the baby had been had gotten fussy, so Morgan had given the baby to Mariella, and she's in the vocal booth over this second half of the tune, this salsa half of the tune, improvising lyrics with the baby in her arm, and she does a verse, and she does another verse, and I'm like signaling to her like thumbs up, great, like we, you know I think we got it, but she just wouldn't stop. She like she you know was proverbially speaking, she was you know, she caught fire. She just wanted to keep going and going. And the band starts looking at each other like, you know, sort of half like how long are we going to do this for because it's fast, and half like holy you know holy shit mariella's going nuts over there on the microphone so and that was in an isolation booth and the band is still playing yeah live so this whole yeah. thing is happening together yes yeah. yeah and you know and this is this is that we i mean we we probably played that section for something like eight minutes in the end and then we wound up you know we needed to edit it down for the uh for the to put it on the record um but yeah it was it was um and the kid behaved and the kid behaved, though you can hear him at the end. You can hear him at the end. He, because then, you know, we have this, the, the the song ends with the percussion section. So it's when the band, like, quiets down and it's just the percussion, you can hear him just, like, going, giving a little, like, wah-wah. Um, so it's, uh, it was, you know, it's that was that was one of the moments in the studio making this record when I really felt like we were onto something in a way. I mean, like, that was a moment of... Uh, 
everything had come together, just the musicians working their asses off and everybody being super well prepared and having a great attitude. But then like that magical moment where somebody steps out of the role there, you think they're going to play and just like, you know, takes it to the next level. And then the band picks it up, right? You know, everyone responds to that. Before this interview, uh, your, your daughter Charlie was reading a book to me, and I was was trying to listen to the to the album, and the very first song, she she hits my arm and says, "Oh, that's me singing." Yeah. So, how so did that happen? Well, you know, there there's a there's a lot of family stuff going on on this record. It's a very it's um, you know, it's 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 in a way the, a sort of sub theme of the album is intergenerationality. Um, of course, we are the new generation of Boogaloo musicians, but there are kids on the record. So Mariela is, like I said, Mariela's kid. Um, Lou is on uh, is on that one tune. You know, I'm no good. But yeah, we we um, so Rowan Ricardo Phillips had written this poem that was published around called um, um, something about uh, Heralds of Delicioso Coco Alado. And Delicioso Coco Alado is this thing from my childhood, from a lot of New Yorkers' childhood. It's the, you know, the, the icy man on the corner, the Puerto Rican icy. And um, I was just thinking, like, Coco Alado, I'm like, you know, I didn't even, I didn't really look at the words to the poem as much as just think to myself, I'm going to write a song called Coco Alado, with the, the chorus being Delicioso Coco Alado, because that's just... That just seems to be something necessary for New York and for Latin Boogaloo. So we were recording that one, and I had I had gotten Rowan, the poet, to come in and recite his poem on an instrumental break on the record. And Rowan had brought with him, by coincidence, his then five-year-old daughter, Imogen, uh, because as we all know, child care can be tough, so you probably didn't have anyone that day so sure. he brought he had sure. Imogen with him 
and I had Charlie with me in the studio. She was hanging out while we were working on this tune, and we had them do a little thing. We were just, just a moment of inspiration. We were like, let's get the girls to come in and say like, Coke, you know, Coco Alado a few times, like kids clamoring for ice cream. And we worked that into the song. was so much fun recording with them that we were like well what else can we do with them while well, we've got these two five-year-old girls gathered around a microphone and jumping up and down and singing and enjoying themselves so we got them in on um boogaloo pa mi abuela which is a song called um you know about um it's about someone saying to their grandmother abuela tell me about the boogaloo days tell me about the 1960s when you listened to mongo santa maria when you listen to Ray Barreto, tell me about the protests against the Vietnam War. Tell me about what it was like back then. It's, the chorus is, Bua lupa mi abuela, no mas, um, no mas novela. So, like, turn away from the novelas, the telenovelas, the soap operas, and tell me, tell me all this about the old days. intergenerational but the sort of the topics even within the songs we're asking our grandparents to tell us these stories and we're bringing back the music of, of those times yeah well when you're playing this kind of music it's 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 very easy to i mean it lends itself to sort of thinking historically in a way and thinking about the roots of the music i mean latin boogaloo I could go on and on it's got much deeper roots than just the 1960s but that's where the genre is is crystallized and that's that's where that's the um, the moment that people identify with it so yeah it's it's that thinking about what the what the older generation experienced while they were listening to this kind of music 
and sort of paying tribute to them and trying not to lose those stories and lose the lose um lose those experiences i guess archiving it in a way um while trying to turn it into music for today mm-hmm. so a lot of the stuff that we talk about on the podcast is um the social purpose of the music that different uh, types of brass bands play so you know the social purpose of of balkan music in the balkans versus how balkan music is used kind of by the 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 new york branch of that community um, or honk bands or activism or new orleans Um, and i feel like a lot of the listeners maybe aren't as familiar with boogaloo and its history but what is the social function of that music um, and what communities does it play to both when it started and now in your view well, I have a much more sophisticated and thorough response about the history of it because I'm still formulating in my mind what's going on with it now. But when when people talk about Boogaloo in the 1960s, they talk about it as um, a way for usually young Puerto Rican Americans to find their way in the culture of the U.S. and they were a lot of the music was made by first-generation Americans or by immigrants, usually very young Puerto Ricans. Not not exclusively. Um, in fact, it's for Latin music, it's much more multi-ethnic than a lot of other genres. Um, that's how you get an Afro-Filipino like Joe Batan becoming a big star, or someone like Jimmy Castor, who was African-American, uh, leaving his mark on Boogaloo. Pucho Brown of Pucho and the Latin Soul Brothers. Um, was a was also very important to the to the moment, right? Because this music is not primarily it's not from the island. It really was created and popularized in New York, right? In in El Barrio, in Spanish Harlem, and it was very much a product of that neighborhood. And in in the nineteen sixties, you had sort of more much more rigid neighborhood designations mm-hmm. than you than you have now so you had spanish harlem and it was on one side bordered by uh, central harlem and on the other side by um italian harlem right it's far east harlem so um you can really hear in boogaloo these uh young latinos who were steeped in their families music and the afro-cuban music um, maybe trained in it too, wanting to take that and somehow be James Brown or Motown at the same time, um, because they they were neighbors with um, with African Americans and there was this heavy doo wop influence at the same time, and as you know as we know doo wop is initially a uh, African American form, but it was at the time very popularized and popular among Italian Americans who were much considered in those days much more of an ethnic group than we sort of think of them now. Mm-hmm. So, and is, is dancing an essential part of this music? Also, isn't uh, is Boogaloo also considered like a a dance or or a set of dances? It's it's sort of a loose set of dances or a poorly defined set of dances. I mean, I think I think it was a specific set of dances or a specific dance that came from African American culture and came from what was then called the Chitlin Circuit of the 1950s, which was 
uh, African-American groups touring and playing in the South, particularly venues that were, you know, segregated venues, venues because they weren't allowed to play in a lot of venues. But this was a circuit and a, a sort of style of performance that was going on all over the country. And I've, I've never successfully traced the origin of the word boogaloo beyond uh, further earlier than that moment, the 1950s African-American music and dance. And it referred to a dance initially. So um, what happened was, I mean, there, there's a famous story. You know, every genre has its like superhero origin story, right? So there's a story about how the Joe Cuba sextet in 1965 got booked at a, I think it was, uh, I forget the name of the club, but a club in central Harlem. And they were playing in front of a largely African-American audience. And they and no one was dancing to their very traditional Latin music. So they made up this song on the spot, which became their famous song, Bang Bang, one of the big hits of the Boogaloo era. And supposedly they started playing the song that they were making up on stage. And the audience all started doing a kind of line dance to it and chanting this thing, she freak, ha, she freak, ha, which on the record they made beep, beep, ha, because I think they were concerned about, get, you know, they wanted to get it on the radio. They were concerned about censorship. So that's that's sort of the, you know, like that's the seminal story. Of course, it's not quite that simple. And people tell other stories about Mongo Santa Maria collaborating with Herbie Hancock or about Ray Barreto doing uh, the Watusi, but set to a Latin beat and calling it El Watusi. But that's, that story sort of gives you the idea of what was going on. This was an attempt at bridging the gap between genres, bridging the gap between cultures. And at the same time, it was an attempt at commercial success. So Boogaloo bands, the, the musicians used to call this, they would get on American radio as opposed to what they called Spanish radio. Those were the two different terms they were, they were using at the time. And... In the in the you usually didn't see a boogaloo record. What you saw was a Latin record that had like track uh, side A, track one, and side B, track one, were these boogaloo tunes with English lyrics. The rest of the album was instrumental or Spanish lyrics, but the these were their attempts to get on the radio, get a hit single, make some money. I mean, you know, good for them. Um, but this was also one of the reasons why a lot of people had a hard time taking the genre seriously. Now you did have an you did have albums at the time, the Ray Barreto Acid album. It's not not every song on it is would be classified individually as a Boogaloo song, but it's a Boogaloo album through and through, and it's it's my go-to album. It's always you know I sometimes I like to joke I when I'm in the studio sometimes I say, W W R D, what would Ray do? What would Ray Barreto do? Because it's really like the the uh, that's the fallback for me. And, and so for you, is Ray Barretta really the your uh, I don't want to say primary influence, but certainly your your go to when you're thinking about um, what should what should Boogaloo sound like? Yeah, it's it's he's you know inner circle anyway, and really that that Acid album is the one. It's for for me. It's it's the sound and the feel, and we did of course. We Chaco and I stole the bass line from the title track 
the track acid um, for New York rules. So we sort of based the whole New York rules tune around this this baseline, which is very famous in Latin music. Dong, ba do dong, ba doom bong bong, ba do dong, ba doom bong. Taking a beat train, heading down the track. Here we go. I'm riding the beat train, heading to the show. Leaning on the door. These strangers on the beat train, heading where I don't know. And that bass line is, in fact, also is sort of a, a riff on, um, on um, a Mongo Santa Maria bass line, which is... Um, so you can you can hear the way these things get uh, get taken up and reused over time. Yeah, and it's funny because it's 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 very similar to the way that other sort of cultural I don't want to say folk music exactly, but in the in the Balkan music community and in New Orleans, like uh, it's 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 similar to jazz in that it's not all about one hundred percent original creations. It's about taking what has come before, riffing on it changing it making a new song out of out of the elements that have already been around the idea of creation is a little bit different i think that's right and i think the idea of originality is a little bit different and no one no one wants no one puts on a boogaloo record because they want to hear anybody sort of uh, you know um you know opening up their they're, they're not seeking to like find to hear no one's putting on a bo- no one is putting on a boogaloo record because they're seeking to hear sounds they've never heard they're seeking to hear the way sounds they have heard are being put together by this particular band mm-hmm. and that's that's the that's the object right in some way the artistry is working within the framework of a pre-existing uh, set of parameters to create new variations on a theme yeah, it's what can you do in this structure. Now, the thing about Bulu that I love is that it's a very flexible structure. Um, it's, it's, it's not. It's, I think salsa is more rigid. I think song cubano is more rigid. Of course, I don't have the same experience writing in those genres. Um, but in Bulu, kind of like in rock, you can you can have a passage that just sounds like jazz, and it makes perfect sense in the context of the song. And it's not like some experiment, like, oh, they're playing jazz now. It just works within the genre. Right. And because the dances maybe aren't as strict. You know, one thing I learned about Balkan music is that the rhythms of the songs are not by accident. And they're not necessarily about what, uh, what would be most musically interesting. It's because they are in service of a dance. And it seems like Boogaloo is primarily a musical art form first and that sort of the dances exist around it as opposed to being the purpose of it right well this is this is you've touched upon another thing that really attracted me to the genre the more i got to know about it and i loved 
to hear in those days, and I still love to hear a great salsa band, but salsa clubs can be very daunting for people who are not really willing to show their stuff on the dance floor. And they're really in, very often salsa clubs are places where um, dancing is the objective. Boogaloo is a genre that invites people to dance very much, but it's not about partner dancing. It can be. You can do the salsa steps if you want, but the impetus and the sort of feeling of the music is everybody's welcome here to just get up and shake their thing no matter what. And, yeah, I mean, no one no one is going to go to a, a boogaloo show and be too intimidated to dance. Right. Not unless it's in a salsa club with a bunch of people who are dressed to the nines and there's bottle service. Right. <laughs> and I don't go to those, those places. And those people might be angry at you for not playing a traditional structure. Yeah, well, you know, and we've... We've had shows at places like SOBs where the most of the audience gets what we're doing, but there are people who are like, you know, just like stand in front of the stage with their like their arms out like, what the hell? I came here to salsa dance and you're, you know, whatever we're doing, we're playing a song at the, at the moment that feels more like a funk tune or whatever. Right. <laughs> my, my steps don't work for this one. Yeah. Um, Play something different. All right. So uh, the album will be be released soon February yeah Ike Boogaloo Ike Boogaloo it's uh, supposed to sound like something your Jewish Puerto Rican grandmother would say Ike Boogaloo <laughs> brilliant and uh, have you got a release show coming up Highline Ballroom February 8th with Joe Batan on the bill so um, we're gonna we're gonna play a, a long set and then we get to party and chill and drink and celebrate our new record while Joe Batan takes the stage with his uh, he calls his band the Barrio Boys um, though they're not all boys um, and um, that's did I say February 8th already yep um, I expect it to be quite a celebration we're we're really proud of this record this is we think this represents a step forward for us musically and professionally. I mean, I was very proud. I've been very proud of everything Spanglish Fly has released and my role in it. But this is really special in that the the band really pulled together. I never really expected myself to be working at this level in terms of songwriting and arranging. So um, I'm very proud of what I've contributed here and I'm very proud of my bandmates and my bandmates are all very proud of what they all brought to the table in terms of um, just their, you know, their on point playing, but also their contributions, their ideas and uh, stuff that came together collaboratively in the rehearsal room, in the studio, talking outside the, re the rehearsal studio, like, wait, why don't we do this? Okay, let's go back in and try it, that sort of thing. Absolutely, and the passion and the work really comes through uh, in the recordings. I mean, that's that's where the, the rubber hits the road, uh, and it really shows. I think the listeners would agree. Thanks for saying so. I'm glad you like it. I mean, ultimately, like, what are we doing this for, right? We want people to enjoy it. You know, I don't I don't know if I have a better <laughs> for for Spanglish Fly. I don't know have a better explanation of the social function than um, we're trying to you know, contribute something beautiful to the world.
And that'll do it for today's Street Brass podcast. Thanks so much to Jonathan Goldman. And check out uh, Spanglish Fly's new album, IK Boogaloo. And if you can get to the Highland Ballroom on February 8th, check out their show. Thanks so much, and see you in the streets. Mm-hmm.